Dusty, what's the one book you can always find in our car when we're on a trip? Honestly, Mike, it is usually a Moon travel guide. That's right. Moon is our favorite travel guidebook publisher because not only are they a source for ethical travel and the best ways to get away, but their books also are packed full of information on everything from sites to see, trails to hike, restaurants, and lodging, all from real authors who are local to the areas they're writing about. That's right. And we're so excited that this year we are again partnering with Moon Travel Guides. Ready to cross something off your travel bucket list in 2024? Have a lot of great ideas for trips, but don't know how to get started or keep your itinerary organized? Wherever your wanderings might take you or inspire you to go, Moon Travel has you covered. Moon Travel is the travel guidebook publisher for ethical travel. Don't spend months trying to craft the perfect getaway when you can do it all with Moon. Whether you're headed abroad, planning to take to the open road, or want to wander the trails of a national park, make sure to pack a Moon Travel Guide with you. Through the end of 2024, our listeners can get 20% off any Moon Travel Guide when they use the code GAZE20 at checkout. That's amazing. And that is code GAZE24, G-A-Z-E-2-4 for 20% off any Moon travel guide in Moon's entire library. And that is just for our listeners, and you cannot find that anywhere else. Be sure to visit Moon.com. Head to our show notes and check it out and see Moon's entire collection of travel guidebooks. 2020 has been a year of benchmarks, change, and waking up, and we're only about halfway through. While countries the world over were affected by COVID-19 in America, social issues shared the stage with the virus that shows no signs of stopping in the near future. And it's clear that these social issues, specifically those championed by Black Lives Matter, are nothing new. They're just lingering below the surface. Through increased episodes of police brutality and violence towards Black Americans, The movement which has existed since July 13th, 2013, was reinvigorated in its fight for social justice. Along with simultaneous protests around the globe and calls for defunding the police, protesters also sought to change things that could be immediately visible. The removal of monuments, statues, and flags that have long been criticized for both who and what they celebrate. This trail mix is all about monuments their historical significance, their removal, and in some cases, the remaining presence in some spaces across the country. So if the South lost the war, why are monuments there in the first place? So in order to understand the crossroads that we're at, uh, and the space that we've been in for several years now, we first have to understand why, in a civil war where the Confederacy was defeated, a collection of states that seceded from the Union in order to maintain the vile and inhumane practices of slavery, this history was allowed to be immortalized through monuments, statues, and in the naming of things. And to understand why these monuments are not dedicated, as they are not often cited, to the past and the ancestors of those who gave their lives for the ideals of the Confederacy, however misguided they were, but rather were a testament to white supremacy and white supremacist ideals, we have to look at when most of these monuments were erected. In a study from the Southern Poverty Law Center in 2016, it is clear that most of the monuments were put in place at two major points in the 20th century, the early 1900s and in the 1950s to the 1960s. 
So looking at these spikes and the politics at the times, you're able to spot an easy correlation between periods of civil rights tension in the country and the construction of the monuments to the quote-unquote glorious South. In the early 1900s, Jim Crow laws were being drafted to disenfranchise black Americans, and in the 1950s and 60s, major protests and civil rights issues including bus boycotts, sit-ins, marches on Washington, and desegregation to name a few, created an incredible amount of civil rights tension in the nation. In these periods where the white majority was placing or attempting to place restrictions on black Americans, the construction of these monuments from a war long since past was a way to send a message to the country that although the Confederacy was dead, the ideals of it, the white supremacy, reigned on and in fact was being glorified. To construct these monuments in a public space or to name a state or federal building after a so-called hero of the Confederacy was to colonize the space for whites. To show black Americans while they had their freedom, they were never ever truly free of the ghosts of the past nor the horrors of their modern day lives. These statues and memorials and the use of the Confederate flag became less about creating remembrance and more about exercising control. Control through fear. Where and why have monuments been removed? By municipality or by protest? Despite the fact that conversations are being had and have been had for some time now and that people are waking up to this current reality, monuments are slow to come down. Part of this has to do with public opinion. In the wake of the Charlottesville, Virginia white supremacist rally, polls were taken as to public opinion surrounding Confederate monuments and the use of the Stars and Bars flag. In 2017, Morning Consult and Politico polled around 1,900 registered voters and found that 52% believed that the statues should remain, while 22% didn't know and 26% believed that they should come down. In 2020, the same poll was given to roughly the same sample size, and that result changed to 44% in favor of keeping, 23% that didn't know, and the remaining 32% believing that they should come down. In regards to the Stars and Bars flag, in 2015, 52% of people found that the flag was a symbol of Southern pride rather than a racist symbol, as opposed to only 44% who currently hold that view today. Well, public opinion does grow for the removal of these Confederate figures and the removal of the Confederate flag from public spaces, including as a part of the Mississippi state flag, overall the numbers haven't changed greatly. While statues and monuments have come down and buildings, highways, and trails have been renamed, there is still a lot of work to be done when it comes to understanding that the removal of these statues does not erase the history of the Confederacy or the men that died defending it, but instead, it removes a symbol of hatred and terror from the public eye. Not just for black Americans who are rightly offended and upset by their visage, but for every other American in order to understand that these ideas literally should not be placed upon a pedestal, and if they are, they should come down. So what have been some of the barriers in the removal of these monuments? The Southern Poverty Law Center has a great interactive map that shows the roads, monuments, parks, trails, buildings, scholarships, schools, municipalities, and other government spaces which are named for or created to honor the Confederacy or Confederate figures. According to Business Insider, as of June of 2020, there are over 1,800 of these spaces and monuments across the U.S., 
most falling within the South. While monuments have been removed by local municipalities and state governments, there are still a great number of these to be attended to. Most of the removal of these monuments have been in the 21st century through drips and draps. The largest amount removed by year were in 2017 and now in 2020. Removing these monuments isn't easy. Oftentimes, to avoid confrontation and to ensure that the peace is kept, monuments are removed in the dead of night. Crews that have removed Confederate statues are often provided protection by law enforcement, and out-of-state companies are sometimes contracted to remove the statues as no in-state company wants to be associated with their removal, as was the case in New Orleans in 2017. And when the municipality won't step in, sometimes protesters have taken matters into their own hands by either defacing or toppling the statue or monument on their own. From statues of Columbus to statues of Robert E. Lee on the grounds of a high school that bear the same name, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd by police officers in Minneapolis, the removal of both Confederate monuments and those glorifying people of history who stood for horrible ideas and enslaved others have begun to be removed. While this process is indeed being sped up and more and more statues are coming down, there are several states with laws that specifically prohibit the removal or alteration of statues and monuments dedicated to the Confederacy. These states include Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, North and South Carolina. While some of these states require a majority vote before any action can occur in regards to removal or renaming, some states outright prohibit any action be taken at all. Virginia was a state that had a law like this on the books dating to 1902. The law was repealed in April of 2020. So how do we rectify NPS sites that have Confederate statues, NPS sites like Gettysburg? While many of these spaces that house Confederate monuments and memorials are not associated with the MPS, there is one space that has the largest cluster of these statues and monuments, and that is the National Military Park of Gettysburg. It is the site where an epic three-day battle turned the tide of the war for the Union, where over 7,000 men were killed, over 30,000 were wounded, and over 10,000 reported missing, and where President Lincoln read his now-famous address, that the statues to the Confederacy occupy space along with the memorials and statues to the Union and Union soldiers. Gettysburg has over 1,300 monuments that are dedicated to those who fought and died in this important Civil War battle on both sides, both Union and Confederate. The Confederate state monuments at Gettysburg, like many others across the nation, were not erected until the 20th century. Three in the period between 1917 and 1933, and eight coinciding with the civil rights movement and beyond, going up from 1961 to 1984. The National Park Service maintains multiple sites which deal with the horrors and victories of the Civil War, from battlefields to churches to arsenal buildings. They also maintain several spaces which house monuments, aside from Gettysburg. Of those spaces, some had monuments that were authorized by Congress, some had monuments in place prior to the NPS management of the site, but all these sites and monuments under the auspices of the National Park Service are preserved for holistic education about the Civil War, each side and what their motivations and actions were. Acting National Park Service Director David Vela recently stated that his agency, quote, 
rejects behaviors, beliefs, and judgments that erode the rights and freedoms of all people, end quote, and that it would work, quote, against all racism, end quote. He went on to say that, quote, we believe in the power of nature and the history of resistance to inspire, educate, and promote fundamental change, end quote. He also stated that, quote, the National Park Service protects places where our nation has struggled with issues of race, equity, and systemic violence, from the Medgar and Murley Evers home in Mississippi, to the duty station of the Buffalo Soldiers at the Presidio in California, the Frederick Douglass home in Washington, D.C., Little Rock Central High School in Arkansas, and the path of the marchers from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. These and other places in our care honor the sacrifices of people who fought to advance social justice and human rights. However, Vela didn't say anything regarding the monuments and the statues to the Confederacy and the Confederate soldiers at Gettysburg. So while this issue is an ever-present one, and while monuments and statues are being addressed across the nation and names are being changed because of racist leanings and undertones, what should NPS do? Does David Vela's statement seem to abdicate in some ways a response to what is happening currently, or does it say exactly what it needs to say about the issue and where they stand? as an interpreter and educator of history. So we were recently in Gettysburg. Right. Which we will do a whole episode about. But In season three. In season three. Yeah, we saw all of those Confederate monuments that we're talking about. Right, right. I grew up in Mississippi near this spot called Beauvoir, which was essentially the White House of the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. That's where Jefferson Davis lived. And it was like every year at elementary school like it was like there was a trip to Beauvoir to learn about Jeff Davis and the Confederacy Mm -hmm. every single year yeah you've told me about this yeah I mean problematic in like a major major way yeah well we were in Gettysburg I remember walking around seeing all of these Confederate statues Mm -hmm. and you know we had a lot of conversation about it so some of the things we talked about are should the monuments even be there to begin with and should they remain there It sort of, to me, gets to the heart of the question, like, well, what's the intention behind the monument? Right. The intention behind, it sounds like, putting those monuments there because of, you know, the years that they were put there. Right. Had they been erected, you know, right after that war happened then I would believe that it was to honor the lives that were lost there. exactly. But because they were put there so long afterwards, to me, that doesn't say we're honoring those people's lives. And and because of where it lined up with other civil rights, you know, issues and social justice issues, I feel like, and especially looking at that collaboration or the cooperation between the time periods, it seems very blatant in the choice of erecting them when they did and putting them up when they did. I agree. And like to the point about like the act of control and control by fear, they are gigantic and they are, you know, they take up space, take up a lot of space. Okay. Education. Education is very important. We cannot erase the Confederacy from history. No, it is something we absolutely must remember, but I don't feel like it should be remembered as a way to claim an identity or claim a political party or claim like a political stance. One should not claim ideology or yeah, yeah, exactly. I should not claim like Southern pride and let that, let the Confederacy be representative of that Southern pride because right. Pick a different thing. (laughs) Yeah. Pick a different thing or, or like, 
if I am staking claim as to like my political leanings, the Confederacy should not represent my political leanings. No. No. So what do you think NPS could do to help better interpret the statues and their inscriptions for those visiting without a tour guide or without any historical context to back it up? Okay, so here's where we get into it, right? Yeah. Okay, the inscriptions on the statues. Here is the inscription on the statue from the state of Florida in Gettysburg to honor the soldiers from Florida that fought. Floridians of Perry's Brigade, compromised of the 2nd, 5th, and 8th Florida Infantry, fought here with great honor as members of Anderson's division of Hill's Corps and participated in the heaviest fighting of July 2nd and 3rd, 1863. The brigade suffered 440 casualties of the 700 men present for duty. Like all Floridians who participated in the Civil War, they fought with courage and devotion for the ideals in which they believed. Now, if the inscription stopped here, I would kind of be all right with that, Mm -hmm. personally. But it continues on, and it says, By their noble example of bravery and endurance, they enable us to meet with confidence any sacrifice which confronts us as Americans. Yeah, that like totally darkens that. Yeah, that to me glorifies their... um, Belief in racism. Their belief in racism and white supremacy, right? It's like, even if the thing that you believe in is racism and white supremacy, like dying for it is noble and brave, right? is what that says to me. And I love argument about uh, like another way to interpret those words, but that's what how I interpret it. Right. So one, I think we have some issues with the inscriptions, right? Because like one can look at that one who doesn't know anything about the exactly. Civil War and say, oh, they had a really legitimate reason to fight in this war, and they lost their lives fighting for it, mm-hmm. right? Which leads me now to the thing about education right. and how to use these monuments for educational purposes, because they are there. Gettysburg is the space where the Confederacy fought the Union. So we obviously, it's not helpful to erase the Confederacy from this space, as it was a space important to the war, where they both fought. But if we want to use these monuments for educational purposes, yeah, I think we might need to take another look at those inscriptions to say, like, what's actually helpful here and what is not. I get the idea of wanting to remember people who lost their lives, Mm -hmm. but to glorify the reason why they lost their lives is not helpful. Right. And also, then we must contextualize, one, what the war was fought over. Right. When the monuments were erected... And why they've decided to keep them. Right. Like, all those things must be present in the tour guide's explanation of what you're looking at. Yeah. Which is incredibly important considering when so many of them were placed there and for what reason, you know, to just continue to glorify white supremacy. Okay, so let's talk about the Stars and Bars flag. Do you feel like it is appropriate to see it in Gettysburg? I think, again, when you are contextualizing history, and this is a battle where these two banners essentially met the Union flag and the Confederate flag, I do think it's different to see a Stars and Bars flag here in Gettysburg than it is to see hanging off of someone's house 
or today in 2020. today in 2020. Um, I do think that context matters. This battle space is that context. It was a space where these two armies met. And I do believe that it's explanatory as to the battle and the things that were being used at the time by different armies. Um, and I know this is something that you think about when it comes to the state flag of Mississippi, which, you know, you can talk a little bit about that now. Yeah, of course. I actually love flags. It's like a thing that I love. You know this. Mm-hmm. The Stars and Bars flag was literally... So the Stars and Bars flag is the one that people think of when they think the Confederate flag, or it's the one that's largely used to represent the Confederacy. But it really wasn't. It was mostly just Lee's flag, right? So, kind of. Yeah. The flag of the Confederacy sort of looks like the flag of the Union, instead of like all of the red and white stripes. There were just like two red stripes and one white stripe. Mm. And then there was the the blue square, but there were only seven stars in a circle. Mm -hmm. And that was the Confederate flag. But on the battlefield, when the Union flag and the the Confederate flag are both in the air and the flag is, you know, like... Draped. Draped down, you can't tell which is which. Right. So Stars and Bars was created as a way to be able to more quickly identify and distinguish which side was which on a battlefield. I have gotten into many, many debates recently about this flag because Mississippi has been... Mississippi just officially voted to get rid of the Confederate flag in its state flag. It was the only state in America today that still featured the Confederate flag in its state flag. And the governor did say that if he got a bill on his desk that, you know, wanted to get rid of the stars and bars flag in the state flag that he would sign it so congress ran in and had session on a saturday a couple of weeks ago and they got rid of it they came to some compromise about you know what the new one needs to have on it and things like that but i think it is deeply important that they got rid of that flag on the state flag because as i was explaining to someone who was arguing with me about like well it represents southern heritage i'm like mm, now you're talking about symbolism and the 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 issue is that this flag was created as a symbol to represent a group whose ideals were white supremacy slavery and not acknowledging black people as human beings mm-hmm. there was Never a time where that flag did not represent that. It represented it in its creation and all through its use. And then after the Civil War, it has come back over and over again to represent various hate groups after various hate groups. And it was even used as like a symbol of a political party called the Dixiecrats, which if you want to research them and all of the problems that they present (laughs) and how, you know, their ideals were entirely white supremacy, their presidential nominee was Strom Thurmond, who said some really, really, really scathing white supremacists, deeply racist things throughout his entire political career. All that to say, that flag... I remember growing up thinking like, like when I really started putting two and two together of like what the Confederacy was and what it represented, I just was like, why is, why does that flag, how did that flag get equated with Southern heritage? So now I'm very, very proud to say that Mississippi is 
getting rid of it. Right. So I'm excited to see what the new flag will look like. Our last question, or the last question I have. In 2019, D.C. Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton said this regarding the removal of a statue of a Confederate general named Albert Pike near Judiciary Square in Washington, D.C. Quote, I oppose tearing down Confederate statues because I believe they should be moved to more appropriate settings like museums to avoid erasing an important part of history from which Americans must continue to learn. End quote. How would placing these statues in a museum change their interpretation, whether it's at Gettysburg or, or another Confederate statue from another space? Um, and does that solution seem like a viable one? I think I understand what she means, especially like in the interest of education. A museum is in its nature an educational space, even if it is an art museum. Right. You are having some, you are learning something through your experience in that space. But I don't believe that if I'm walking down a public street where there's no sort of like, like no significant piece of history has happened in this public street, to have a random Confederate statue there just feels totally out of context mm-hmm. to me. And if we are saying that context matters, then moving that statue to a museum where it can be better contextualized, especially to teach the actual deep-seated racism in American history, then I think it could be useful. And also, part of the story of that statue needs to say, it was erected in this year and placed in this place and then moved and brought here for this purpose. Right. All of these changes don't need to go unacknowledged. It's all part of the learning process. And a part of the context. Yeah. yeah. What are your feelings about that? No, I think that makes a lot of sense, especially if we're talking about, you know, Gettysburg itself has, you know, a pretty wonderful museum in its visitor center. Yeah. I've been to Gettysburg. This is like my seventh trip. Um, I'm a middle school teacher, so our eighth graders typically go to Gettysburg. And I really have enjoyed the trip there each time. This is the first time I've gotten to explore the site a little bit more with, you know, unencumbered of, you know, hundreds of middle school students. Um, So it was really interesting to see the space from a perspective that we saw in, in a very quiet time. There weren't a lot of people there, you know, seeing some of these statues a little closer. From an artistic point, there are some that are beautifully crafted. They are, you know, well-sculpted objects. So I think moving a statue could offer an opportunity for A, an educational experience, and then B, potentially to replace that statue with a statue of something that's more meaningful and might relate better to the community that it came from um, or the community that it is in. For example, removing a statue of Christopher Columbus and putting up a statue of someone that is an indigenous person to better represent and to change the context of what Columbus did here in the United States and the fact that this land was and did belong to indigenous people before he arrived. So I think there is that opportunity as well. Whether that's something that's going to happen at Gettysburg, it seems like you know, what David Vela had said seems to kind of like the writings on the wall there that probably not much is going to change when it comes to the the Confederate statues there. Do I believe that they can do a better job at contextualizing everything? Yes. Um, If it can't be moved to a museum, then I think that context must be there in some sort sort of placard that is easily accessible for everyone to see and read. Um, So if it can't be in a museum space, 
than the museum spaces brought there through that placard. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, like, if you replace a statue of Christopher Columbus with an indigenous person, then the context for why that statue was removed and why it was replaced with this one, that needs to be acknowledged because the collective learning process of our country cannot go unrecorded. Right. And you can't ignore it. No. You have to, you know, you have to look at it dead in the eye and you have to accept what it was and you have to move on from it. Right. These are conversations that need to be had, not just in classrooms, but between friends and among family. We will be the first to admit that we are not perfect students of history and that learning and investigating these issues beyond the scope of our traditional education has further illuminated to us the sometimes incredibly dark history of our nation. In order to grow, to surpass the shortcomings of the generations that have come before us, we have to continue to learn and we have to continue to do the work. The work is hard, but it needs to be done. We, as a people and as a country, cannot continue to sit on our hands when it comes to addressing issues that have long simmered below the surface. We have to shed light into the dark places and do the difficult thing because it is right and because it is just. As always, we encourage you all to do your own research and to continue to investigate what we have presented. Our sources for this episode include the National Park Service, NPR, Morning Consult, The Washington Post, The Southern Poverty Law Center, Business Insider, The Hill, and Bloomberg City Lab. This has been Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. And we're here to remind you to learn early and learn often, and that greater context is always out there. Gaze at the National Parks was created and is hosted by Dustin Ballard and Michael Ryan. To see images from this episode, follow our Instagram at Gaze at the National Parks. To contact us, email us at gazeatthenationalparks at gmail.com. And visit our website, gazeatthenationalparks.com. That's gaze, G-A-Z-E. All original artwork featured on our website and on Instagram is by Michael Ryan. All original music was written by Dave Seaman and performed by Dave Seaman, Mariella Klinger, and Sean Sklios. Our music producer was Skylar Fortgang. This episode was edited by Dustin Ballard. This has been our final Trail Mix episode of Season 2. Please join us for the next four weeks on our... Season 2 Summit Wrap-Up Episodes on visitorship, wildlife, histories, and hiking trails of all of the parks featured in Season 2.